Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The American economy has just had its worst quarter in ages, at least since similar records began to be kept in 1947, and maybe even the worst since the Great Depression of the 1870s. Yeah, there was one then, not well remembered except by economists. But what does this mean for our future? How might our nation change? And will the immediate future be better or worse? Jill Schlesinger is, of course, the Emmy-nominated and Gracie Award-winning business analyst for CBS News, and her book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs, is out there now. If you think some of the things you might be doing might be dumb. Hi, Jill. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, which, you know, considering... Worst drop in GDP since we started keeping these numbers 70 years ago. Totally expected, but what does this say about the future? Well, I think there's a couple of things. You said that it was expected. Uh, This is for the second quarter of the year. So here's how we kind of rewind the tape. Beginning of the year, January and February, the U.S. economy was in pretty good shape. In fact, uh, if I go back to February, the the employment landscape was really good. The unemployment rate was down at 3.5%, matching a 50-year low. Um, the weekly jobless claims for unemployment benefits were you know, right near, actually tied an all-time low, a couple hundred thousand. And then boom, here comes the pandemic. And that pandemic caused a horrible loss of life and illness, but it also meant that the entire nation was essentially locked down starting in March. And March and April were very difficult months for the U.S. economy. March actually was so bad that we actually had a negative output in the first quarter of the year. So we had January and February pretty good, but then March was so bad, it kind of erased all of January and February. And GDP contracted by a 5% annualized rate in the first quarter. Well, now come along to the second quarter and that annualized rate down 32.9%. Now, it doesn't mean that the U.S. economy is a third smaller than it was because the way that the United States reports our gross domestic product, all the goods and services produced in the country, it it's a weird thing. It's essentially... It's a contraction that is reported on an annual basis. It really means the economy was about 9.5% smaller in the second quarter than it was in the first quarter. And that really, as you said, not only does it sort of dwarf any of the records, but to think of it sort of in terms of scale, it's about four times worse than any single quarter that we saw during the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. So it was really, really bad. But it's the past, 
right? And April, May, and June behind us. And what we actually know from various reports that U.S. economic activity started to pick up in May and in June, and things did start to look better. I think the real problem is that with the virus spreading in the South and in the West, we saw economic activity stall some. And there is some concern that that might inhibit the growth that we were seeing so that we may not be as strong as we would have liked even just a few weeks ago. There are some other things here that are troubling. I mean, you look at these numbers, they're all terrible until you come to personal income, which just rose tremendously. But that was in large part because of the government transfer payments associated with the pandemic. I mean, current dollar personal income rose more than sixfold. But those payments are either going to be cut back or at some point they stop altogether. So I'm still not exactly sure what the future looks like here. Well, I think that that's one of the concerns when I talk to economists. They are worried about the spread of the virus itself, right? And that that might at least cause a, a pause in the reopenings or maybe a slower than anticipated reopenings in some parts of the country. But layer on top of that, the idea that we now have millions of Americans who are have lost that extra $600 weekly benefit in unemployment from the government. You know, also on the same day that we got the GDP report, we got the weekly jobless numbers. And those numbers showed another 1.4, more than 1.4 million Americans filed for new unemployment claims. And I think that that's pretty startling considering we're 19 weeks into this. And I think it's also startling to realize that the total number of Americans receiving either state benefits or some of the pandemic assistance, that number is 30 million people. And to imagine that there's all those people who are going to lose that extra money is pretty devastating, especially when you think about this. Money that comes into a household that earns less than $40,000 a year, that money usually gets spent pretty freely in the economy. If the money goes to households that don't really need the money, maybe they still have a job, maybe you got a stimulus check, but you still had a job and you were lucky, that money got saved. So without this extra money from the government, I think that there's a real concern among economists that the third and the third quarter specifically may not turn out to be as robust as they would have hoped. And I think that if you don't have robust growth coming out of this period, it's going to take longer and longer to get back to that level where we were. So something else is going on here. Work may be different. A lot of companies are pleased with what's going on with people doing distance work and saying, hey, if I can cut the amount of space that I lease and the cost of heating it and all of that and can afford more salespeople, that's a good thing. And it's not just tech companies like Twitter and Facebook. You know, I, I just happened to be in Midtown Manhattan this week, and it was so scary because it was the middle of a work week in the middle of a work day. And it was a ghost town, essentially a ghost town. And I wonder about that very fact, which is, you know, the nature of how we go back to work. Now, maybe, maybe let's, let's be realistic that 
we have, you know, if we fast forward and we say there's a vaccine and things have gotten a lot better and many companies believe, you know, say that, you know, uh, sure, we want you to work from home, but we still want you in the office three days a week, or maybe the nature of how offices are configured are go- is going to change. Um, so maybe it's not as dire as all that. What we do know is that the commercial real estate market is is like on quicksand right now. And in some parts of the country, there may be beneficiaries of that. There really may be. You know, it could be that, you know, big, huge companies that were paying a lot for real estate in very expensive markets like New York or DC or Boston or San Francisco say, you know what, we're going to locate to a tertiary city where rents are cheaper. And actually our people would be happy to live because the cost of living is cheaper as well. So it may be that we're seeing sort of an interesting migration that could change how we perceive real estate in general and may not be great for the big urban centers, but could be really good for some smaller cities. Final question. Let me put this to you because of your financial planning background. There are people who have ended up you know, behind on rent, mortgages, and things like that, hope to catch up. Maybe they've been able to make a deal with a bank or a landlord, maybe not. There's going to be a lot of people with damaged credit ratings on the other side of this, even if it is absolutely no fault of their own, but the fault of the virus. How are people going to deal with that? Well, I uh, interviewed the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Kathy Craninger, and she maintains that there will be no blips on your credit record because of the events of the pandemic, that banks are very clear that they're not reporting these events, um, that we shouldn't see a dramatic change. I sort of believe that. I want to encourage people to make sure that they stay on top of this, that number one, you communicate with your lender. So if you have an issue and you can't pay, you call up your credit card company, you call up your landlord, you call up your mortgage company and you say, oh, I've been hit by the pandemic. I need some help. They'll give you forbearance. And if you're on the record saying that you have been hurt by the pandemic, that should not impact you in a negative way. That said, things happen. So I would encourage everyone, make sure, get that annualcreditreport.com, stay on top of what's on your credit record, and immediately correct any errors as you see them. Jill Schlesinger is the Emmy-nominated and Gracie Award-winning business analyst for CBS News. Jill, thank you so much for helping explain what's going on and what may lie just ahead. Well, thanks for having me, and you stay healthy. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. When we first started this weekly series months ago, we talked about a cytokine storm being something like something that happened in the original Star Trek. Cytokines are proteins that are messengers for our immune system. And when disease strikes, they run off through our body, turn the right cells on, the wrong ones off, and guide our body's attack against the invader. And good little things they are, too. But if you remember the trouble with tribbles, those cute little creatures that purred and made everybody in the Enterprise feel better, they multiplied to the point that they got into the warp drive, the food system, and the air system, the things that made you feel better were about to kill everybody on the ship. Well, COVID-19 can cause a cytokine storm, which can be fatal. And nobody knows more about this than the victim of another condition that causes cytokine storms. And he's with us now. David Fagenbaum is a physician scientist and the best-selling author of the memoir, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race 
to turn hope into action, also known as the doctor who cured himself. I'm glad you're here, and I mean that in every sense of the word. Well, Gil, thanks so much for having me, and I love that analogy. I'm, I'm going to start using it. <laughs> you're welcome to it. I've used it twice now. I think I'm done. I've seen pictures of you in your college quarterback days, and most of us have never been that ripped or healthy looking in our lives. And I've seen pictures of you not much later looking as if you've been crawling through the desert for months. What happened? That, that's right. I went from being this healthy third-year medical student who had never had any medical issues to um, literally dying in the exact same intensive care unit that I'd been treating patients in. Just as you said earlier, my liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow, my heart, and my lungs all shut down for an unknown cause. I was actually so sick that my doctors told my family to say their goodbyes, and a priest came in and, and read my last rites to me. And as you also mentioned, we eventually learned, and, and right around that time that I had my last rites read to me, that it was caused by a disease named Castleman disease, which initiates this cytokine storm that looks just like what happens in COVID-19. And so I experienced the cytokine storm for the first time. And thankfully, with the diagnosis came starting me on chemotherapy. And so the chemotherapy saved my life because it destroyed my whole immune system. So they couldn't produce those cytokines any longer. But unfortunately, I would go on to relapse after relapse after relapse. I mean, you almost died, what, five times? That's right. Five times I, I, I came to the brink of death and uh, each time the doctors told my family this was it, and each time I was certain that that was it um, and had really no reason to believe that I would I would make it through. I've actually considered each one of those moments to kind of be the start of a new overtime. And when you think about overtime, it's time you didn't think that you'd have, but it's time that you really want to make the most of. You're now associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine School for, uh, well, actually Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory. And as part of that, you've been going through all the COVID-19 treatments to see what might work. And that's a lot of stuff because essentially, I take it you're looking at drugs that we already have that might be repurposed, which is one of the things that has helped save your life. That's right. I wouldn't be alive today. We wouldn't be chatting today if it wasn't for a drug that no one had ever thought to try before for Castleman disease. And from my laboratory research, I discovered that it may be able to work for me. And I began testing it on myself. And, and it's now been over six years that I've been in remission. I'm alive because of this repurposed drug. So you're exactly right. When COVID-19 really began to hit the US back in early March, I have the center focused on studying cytokine storms, particularly in the context of Castleman disease. But it became very clear very early that cytokine storms were a critical component of COVID. And so we redirected our lab in, in really two areas. One was, as you mentioned, to track all of the drugs being used worldwide to treat patients with COVID-19 and also to work in our lab to identify new drugs that maybe should be tried in the fight against COVID-19. And, and you'll, you'll be shocked to hear the numbers of drugs. We, we kind of hear about the same handful of drugs in the news every day, but actually we found over 250 different drugs have already been given to COVID-19 patients. So this is a case where doctors are trying to repurpose agents all over the world for COVID-19, trying anything they can, particularly for the most sick patients. And unfortunately, before our, what we call Corona project, that data wasn't being collected anywhere. And, and I think the analogy that makes sense is it's almost like you're fighting a war, but you're not keeping track of which weapons were being used and which ones worked and which ones didn't. And so we are tracking all of those and we're performing analyses to look for which ones are most likely um, to have an effect for patients and which ones require more studies, more randomized controlled trials. Yeah. The only ones that we hear about all the time are the ones I think that politicians on either side of the political fence have actually learned to pronounce, <laughs> which is a fairly small group. And I should make something clear in terms of of what has saved your life, you have basically been in 
what I guess is a remission. I mean, are we wrong in saying you've been cured of Castleman's? You know, my book's titled Chasing My Cure, but and sometimes people kind of hear that and they say, oh, wow, congratulations, you cured yourself. And, and I still, I think it's important to emphasize the chasing. Uh, you're exactly right. I found a drug that's keeping me in remission, um, but I, I really measure my remission. I said it's been over six years. Um, I never will say it's been almost seven because I know that I can't round up and I don't know how long this remission is going to be. Um, so we're still chasing my cure, um, but I'm just so thankful for every day that I have. So this is a lot more complicated than I think it is portrayed often on the air and by politicians because talking about the coronavirus that we're dealing with that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. It is not only different from other SARS viruses and different from Castleman's, it affects people in ways that seem much more complex than other diseases that cause cytokine storms. Yeah, I agree with you that it's incredibly heterogeneous and it's really hard to study a disease and in particular to identify effective drugs if every patient seems to be a little different than every other patient. We're actually quite used to that because Castleman disease is another one of these very heterogeneous disorders. But you're right, it makes clinical trials really hard because if every patient's unique, then um, how do you group patients together? Uh, but we, we are trying really hard to tease that out and to identify biomarkers. So blood tests you can run where you can say these patients are more likely to get better on this drug, these patients are more likely to get better on this drug. And what's really important to also remember, not only are patients different and different drugs likely work for different patients, but different drugs likely work for the same patient depending on where they are in their disease course. So an example is a drug called dexamethasone that works really, really well if you're late stages of COVID-19 and you're on a ventilator or you're getting some sort of oxygen. It's incredibly effective at saving lives, but it actually is harmful for you if you take it too early in your disease course. You actually have worse outcomes if you take it too early. So it, it highlights the complexity that COVID-19 is is heterogeneous across patients. So, so different drugs are likely needed depending on an individual patient. And even within the same patient, um, we, we will likely end up needing different drugs depending on where that individual patient is in their disease course. And this brings up something that my profession doesn't bring up that often, but really needs to, which is our reporting. Very often we go, and politicians as well, sometimes based on our reporting, here's a study. But then you get into these things, and often you find that the way they chose the participants or other drugs people may have been taking at the time they were taking the main study drug or pre-existing conditions, so many things can make a study interesting but not even close to conclusive, and as you just expressed – may be good at different stages of COVID-19, but not at all stages. That's got to be frustrating. It's tough. It's very frustrating. You know, I, I spend most of my career and most of my time studying diseases like Castleman disease or cancers where almost all patients do not get better unless they get some sort of treatment. And so when you study a disease like that, if you give someone a treatment and they get better, you can feel quite confident it was the treatment that got them better because uniformly no one gets better without therapy. COVID-19 is, is challenging from a research perspective and also just from a kind of a understanding what's happening, whether you're a politician or you're in the media, because the vast majority of people that get COVID-19 actually survive, whether or not they get any sort of treatment. And so what that means is that if you give someone a drug and they get better, you don't know if it's because of the drug or if it's just that they're going to get better anyway. And so it gets really, really hard to tease out could we have done a clinical trial of sucking your thumb and seeing, you know, the, the effectiveness of it? Well, actually, probably 
close to 99% of people would survive if they sucked their thumb What with COVID-19. I don't think that that act actually improved their outcome. Um, it, it's really just has to do with the natural history. And so the, I think the important thing is, uh, is recognizing that the natural history of the disease is such that um, it's hard to make an inference that one drug works better than another drug unless you have a, a control group where you randomly assign one person um, doesn't get anything um, and one person gets the drug. And then you can say, okay, the people who got the drug had better outcomes. But otherwise, I think that some of the reporting that we saw early on, um, like X drug cures 95% or whatever it is of people, um, like I said, it could be, you know, breathing oxygen cures, you know, 95 and, and not, not nasal cannula, but like literally just breathing the air, you know, cures 95% of people. And I think that the point isn't, isn't that a large proportion of people get better with COVID-19 It's that there's a small percentage that do really poorly and that do die. And so we need to figure out what drugs are going to save those patients' lives. One of the other problems with what we're dealing with here is that we've learned over the last couple of months that some people who survive still have long-term problems. And we don't do a good job, even though we say somebody has been virally cured, on really following up on, hey, how's this person doing? Are, are their lungs okay? Is their heart okay? Are they still suffering a lot of inflammation that's causing them other problems? That's right. At this stage, we we literally only have about six to seven months of data on the you know the longest exposure to COVID nineteen, and so we are going to continue to learn as time goes on about um, what are the long term effects of of having um, this infection. This kind of gets back to the the Corona project that I mentioned earlier, which is our effort to centralize data in one place. Um, amazingly, in this world that we live in, where more and more data is being generated every millisecond than ever before. Um, paradoxically, that data is actually more and more siloed than ever before. And so though we're generating more data, we're actually not necessarily generating more insights from the data. And so it takes efforts like the Corona Project that I mentioned earlier to pull all of that in one place so that we can pick up the trends that we need. And, and we're absolutely going to need to do that as we look at the long-term effects of COVID-19. Coming up more with Dr. David Fagenbaum on the search for a drug to treat COVID-19. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We're talking to physician and scientist Dr. David Fagenbaum, who found a treatment for his own previously untreatable Castleman's disease, which, like COVID-19, kills by causing one's immune system to go haywire. I used to watch, as so many people did, the TV show House, and there'd be these rare conditions, and they'd sit in a room around a table, and they'd write things on a whiteboard, and all the symptoms and all of this, and try and figure out, well, just from these 12 symptoms, what must they have? And I would sit there and go, if I had 12 things going wrong with my car, I could go online and would say, oh, well, those 12 things, it's obviously the alternator. And in matters of life and death, it just seems the medical community has had, and I realize it's much more complicated, especially separating out these different studies, but it seems to be way behind the curve of other sciences of of gathering this information so somebody can figure something out easier. I, I really do agree with you. I think that um, medicine, we have access to incredible amounts of data. And um, and just as you said, uh, in, in the year 2020, um, there are so many industries that have, have been have become really good at utilizing data and making inferences from it. I think that we've been a little bit behind the curve and maybe you could say a lot behind the curve. But I do actually think that... Um, 
massive um, and challenging events like COVID-19 will create change. And, and, I, and I think that it's important to remember that there is absolutely nothing positive about what has happened with COVID-19. This has been uniformly negative, and I wish this pandemic didn't happen. However, one lesson that um, I think that I've learned throughout my journey is that during really tough times, we should look to create silver linings. Oftentimes, we're encouraged to find a silver lining. But in this case, I think us as a medical community shouldn't just say, oh, look what positive came from this. We should say, let's really look at what happened here and let's think about what we can actually create tomorrow so that so that we're better equipped, not just for COVID, but just generally across medicine. And I'm really hopeful that we'll look to create silver linings um, as, as a result of this pandemic. One, I know I said final question before, but I thought of something else that I think really goes to the heart of what you are doing as part of this COVID-19 project, which is repurposing drugs, which are, is so much of what we've been talking about with these various drugs that may be repurposed to fight COVID-19. And that question is this. Off-label use is the FDA is gives doctors a lot of freedom to say, hey, if you think this might work, you know, go for it. That's why you as a doctor were able to prescribe to yourself the medicines that have ended up keeping you alive. But insurance companies, not always so hot about this. And so how much of a problem is that in using drugs that are repurposed from a label use to an off-label use and getting getting it paid for? This is a really important question. So right now, there are somewhere around 2,700 drugs that are approved by the FDA for at least one disease. Um, and interestingly and amazingly, about 20% of the time that a doctor writes a prescription, they actually write a prescription for that for a drug to be used for a disease that it's actually not approved for. So this is this concept of off-label use. So there is a tremendous amount of, um, of off-label use where doctors are writing prescriptions for drugs that the, that the drug is not yet approved for. It's approved for one thing, but it's be, being used in another. Um, so it's already being done. And in those cases, most of those cases, the 20% I mentioned, the insurance company is covering the cost. And that's because for many of the cases, it's well established that that drug actually works really well for that condition. But the drug company just never went to the effort of submitting the extra data to get that an additional approval. So it, it's, it's well established. The world knows it works great for that condition. But then there's a, another group. So there's a group of people who you're getting a drug for the, the disease that the drug was, was approved for. There's a group that gets a drug for a disease that it wasn't approved for, but everyone knows that it it makes sense. And then there's this other group, and that's a disease where no one really knows if that drug is going to be effective or not, but you're out of options. And so that's the group that I fell into. Serolimus had never been used before for Castleman disease. And um, we didn't know if it could work. Um, but based on the, the research I did and, and, and described in, in Chasing My Cure, we thought that it could work. Um, and thankfully, it's a, it's a cheap drug compared to all the chemotherapies I've gotten over the years. So the insurance company paid for it in my case. But it's a really complex calculus as to whether an insurance company will make a decision to pay for one of these drugs that I would say falls into this third group where it, it might work, but the data really isn't there. And, and it really, it's the diseases where there are no other options and generally where the drug isn't all that expensive that an insurance company would agree um, to cover it. And, and I think one last thing I would say is that I'm, I'm literally alive today because of repurposing a drug in this way. Um, but that doesn't mean that I think that we should repurpose every drug and use every drug in a million off-label ways. I think it's really important that we follow the data. And so in my case, we performed a, a number of experiments to get to this. And I think what we need to do is to figure out how do we make sure that 
similarly systematic uh, experiments and studies are done so that the 7,000 diseases, right now there are 7,000 diseases that don't have a single approved drug. How can we figure out which of those 7,000 might actually benefit from one of the drugs that's already approved? My, my drug was at my nearby CVS and no one had ever thought to try it while I was in and out of the ICU. How many other drugs are there out there that might just be waiting at, at your neighborhood pharmacy when you have a really terrible condition? Let's hope one of them or several of them work against COVID-19. I thank you for everything that you're doing. David Fagenbaum is the author of Chasing My Cure, a doctor's race to turn hope into action, and also leads the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory in working on a COVID-19 project to find if some of those drugs may work. And good luck in that search. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much for having me. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. With so many of us hunkering down at home and movie theaters closed, we've been watching movies, new TV shows, old TV shows, really old TV shows at home and getting used to it. Our home screens are not movie theater size, and maybe we don't have 14 speakers, but even with the streaming charges, it's cheaper than a theater. We can put real butter on the popcorn and no babysitter needed, and no sticky soda residue or whatever that is on the floor. So when we come out of this, will we go back to the multiplex or stay home? This past week, the theater chain AMC and Universal Pictures, which had been feuding over whether new movies should be released on demand and when, reached an agreement that may give us a clue as to where we're headed and whether that is to the theater or the living room. Anne Hornaday is the chief film critic of the Washington Post. Anne, good to have you with us. How are you? Thank you, Gil. I'm fine. Thank you. Interesting deal. Basically, it's the third weekend of most films can go right to video on demand and out of the theaters, uh, but they're going to share money with the theaters, or at least with AMC. What does this mean for the future of movie theaters? I think that it was so shocking, I mean, to most of us. I, I don't think anyone saw this coming. Um, what does this mean? This means, I feel like it's an acknowledgement of, of a trend line that we had all been very aware of even before the pandemic hit. And of course, the pandemic has made it, has underlined it even more in terms of just the the fact that we are now habituated you know, to seeing things on our home screens. Um, Traditionally, you have to kind of unpack the deal to begin with, because this means that Universal has the option to to pull its movie off of screens. If it's not, um, you know, I think they're going to have to make sort of a week by week calculation about what's doing well and when it's right to pull it off. But for the theaters, I mean, obviously, the way that the traditional deal between theater and distributor has been that the theater makes more money. Uh, their cut, you know, of that of that box office goes up as that movie stays in, uh, stays on screen. So they're going to have to compensate for that potential loss. Either, you know, like none of us want to see them hike concession prices any higher because we all feel there's too high anyway. Um, so, you know, I just feel like it's yet one more. Uh, it's it's acknowledgement of something, a stress that they had been already experiencing. But it'll really the proof will really be in the doing of it in terms of what kind of movie it will be that uh, makes sense to pull off at the third at the third week mark. Because, you know, um, movies still do. I mean, the ones that hang in, 
still make money. You know, it's, it's I, I can't believe that Universal would sort of leave money on the table early um, in favor of taking it home into home viewing. And there's a promotional value to having movies in theaters. Um, you know, just the awareness of an audience seeing that a movie's there, seeing the trailers that play in front of the other movies. I mean, theatrical is valuable as a promotional tool for that that afterlife that, that movies have in our home entertainment. So I'm not quite sure how they're making that calculation either. You mentioned concession prices, and some people thought that might have just been a witty aside. But for theater owners, it's anything but. For some big pictures, the real big money makers, like a Star Wars film, the movie company may take as much as 90% of the box office. One theater owner said, basically, I have a concession stand with a movie theater attached to it. So, yeah, so this is actually a really big deal. If it cuts further into how much they make off the movie. It, it is a big deal. And like I said, you know, I think that um, in terms of anecdotal evidence, I mean, that's why we've been seeing these theaters get more and more into high end concessions. And they're trying to lure people in, you know, um, any way they can that isn't actual movies, because as to your point, the studio is getting most of that anyway. Um, but like in terms of what I hear from my readers for a family, it's a, that's an expensive day out, you know, when you're when you're paying for four admissions, a lot, you know, like all the snacks, maybe some parking thrown in there. That adds up very quickly. And when you can see Trolls World Tour for 20 bucks in your living room for the whole family, that that calculation kind of solves itself, you know. Um, so it does. It, it really puts theaters in a, in a difficult position. And I think, again, I don't think I don't with those blockbustery movies that are kind of, you have to see it on the big screen. I don't worry so much about those. It's those, um, it's like always, it's those more mid range dramas and mid range comedies. Um, the more kind of mainstream movie movies, I call them movie movies. But I think you know what I mean when I say that yes, I they're, not, they're not superhero movies. They're not cartoons. They're just kind of people movies. That's what I'm wondering about. Might it not be better though? For those kinds of movies that used to get shown at independent theaters and mainly in large cities to move to places like Netflix or Hulu or whatever, there's, uh, you know, there were places to see those movies in big cities. But if I'm in, you know, Moscow, Idaho or Terre Haute, Indiana or, or someplace, I might not have been able to see those films, but for streaming on TV, it, it might be. A great thing for those filmmakers. I, I agree. And well, and I would imagine Moscow probably does have a good art house because it's a college town. College towns tend to have those independent cinemas, you know, and they have um, or at least they have like a venue on campus to show those films. So you're absolutely right. And I think one of the interesting takeaways from this the past few months has been that those independent theaters that are doing virtual cinema, you know, that are making those movies available through their virtual box office, they're pulling viewers from all over the place. You know, they have been the hubs of their brick and mortar communities, but now they're kind of, I think, discovering a whole new audience um, that they are going to want to continue to nurture after this is on the other side of this. And that will be virtually. So I think you're absolutely right that virtual um, is here to stay, even when they do go back to regularly you know, scheduled programming. I wonder how many independent theaters are going to want to have that virtual option to continue playing something that's doing well um, to, you know, and again, to kind of keep uh, 
engaging those viewers that have come and found them during this time. And the same goes for film festivals. You know, film festivals weren't necessarily accessible to everybody either, you know, whether geographically or financially. And um, so I'm all for that, too. I mean, I'm all for, for greater access. Final thing, this is part of something larger that is going on. Uh, many companies, uh, ABC, which, of course, uh, is connected to the film companies, Disney and 20th Century, um, CBS is connected to Paramount, NBC, Universal, they have TV operations. They've been making less and less from over-the-air TV and even basic cable. A lot of basic cable stations are saying, we're not going to produce original content anymore because everybody's basically waiting a year or two and seeing it on Netflix. So why should I make this stuff in the first place except as a producer for Netflix? There may be a giant turnover here to these streaming channels away from not just the way we see movies, but even the way we watch TV. This may be a much larger shift than we're thinking. That's a really good point. Um, you know, I, TV is not my usual beat, so I don't, I'm, I'm not as well versed in the television world. Um, but yeah, I think that this is just, there's no doubt that this, I mean, this it's cliche to call it a seismic shift, but it's, it was already, the business model was already changing, I think. And now we have the human, the actual consumption model, you know, the human behavior is changing. Like this is almost a social engineering experiment at this point. And that was, nobody saw that coming. Well, maybe someday it'll make a really good movie. <gasps> that would be nice. A good movie it, movie. It's called The Seismic Shift that for once would not be about San Francisco falling apart because of an earthquake. <laughs> Ann Hardaday is chief film critic of the Washington Post. And thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. You may have missed it because so many other things happened this week, but Thursday morning, NASA sent Perseverance to Mars, the third Mars mission in just 10 days. And this could change forever what we think about life in the solar system. Though our science fiction here on Earth has been concerned forever with Mars sending flying saucers here, we still don't know if you can fly things in the Martian atmosphere. We're about to find out. CBS News correspondent Mark Strassman went to see just what we're sending to the Red Planet. Perseverance is NASA's biggest and most sophisticated rover ever built. On board, 19 cameras and lots of high-tech wizardry. You're getting an extraordinary opportunity to see the Mars helicopter. Before the COVID pandemic, engineer Mimi Ong showed us ingenuity. This four-pound, $80 million helicopter will photograph the Martian landscape. It would make space history, flying in an atmosphere 100 times thinner than Earth's. Which would be more valuable, the pictures that it takes or proving that it can fly? My very, very personal bias, proving that it flies. <laughs> because that's going to give us the solid foundation to build our ultimate dream, which is just much larger aerial vehicles you know, at Mars. This mission's main goal, peer deep into the red planet's past. Three and a half billion years ago, water covered Mars. Another NASA rover, Curiosity, confirmed the planet could have supported life. Perseverance hopes to establish whether it did. That's the big question. That's the big question. There's a fundamental difference between there could have been life and there was life. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a big, big jump there. Project scientist Ken Williford and his team uh, hope to find yeah, signs of ancient life preserved here in an ancient river delta at Jezero Crater. 
With its robotic arm, Perseverance will play astrobiologist and drill into rock where water once flowed. The samples it collects may hold proof of past microbial life. Think pond scum at the edge of a, the edge of a lake. That would be the galaxy's most valuable pond scum? Indeed. That is what we're looking for. <laughs> Bringing those samples back to Earth will take two more mind-blowing missions. Listen to this. A European rover will pick up the samples. A NASA rocket will launch them off the surface of Mars. And a European spacecraft will try to catch them mid-orbit and haul them back to Earth in 2031. If it sounds complicated, it is. No one has ever done a round trip to another planet before. Lori Glaze oversees planetary science at NASA. Getting samples back from Mars has always been a major goal. Very ambitious, but an exciting, exciting mission. But first, this launch has to go right. And that's up to Tori Bruno and his rocket company, United Launch Alliance. The spacecraft has very little capability to adjust its own trajectory so we just have to point it exactly right and send it on a journey that's going to be over 200 million miles and we do our very best to make sure we do everything we can to make this successful cruising to mars will take almost seven months touchdown will happen mid-february next year cbs news correspondent mark strassman This has been America, Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.